Last October, I was uh, competing in the World Duathlon Championships and it was in Adelaide. And so a few days leading up to that, I was sitting around doing nothing because I was in Adelaide. As I said two weeks ago, Adelaide is the place where the guy who invented boring is from. James, that was for you. Welcome, Welcome back, James. Um, and uh, anyway, so I'm there. When I'm on holidays, uh, I check emails once a day. Just in the morning, just check my work emails once a day just to keep things moving. I don't want to bottleneck things. Oh, we have to wait till markets back from holidays before. Thing. So checking my emails on this particular morning and uh, an email from the Jared pops up. And I like the Jared. And so when emails from the Jared pop up, I like to read them. They're normally good. And uh, this one, the subject line really got my attention. Now, Jared's in sales and he knows that the key to your potential clients, one of the keys, reading your emails is a great subject line. So his subject line was worth reading even while on leave. I'm like, oh, I want to read that. So I did. And uh, the, yeah, sucked me right in. But here's the, here was the opening sentence of Jared's email. Just wanted to ping you another great story of how God is working in our lives. As my subject line suggests, it's worth reading even while you're on leave. Winky face. So tell us the story. What did you write to me about? Hello. Here we go. So the story was uh, about a, a personal journey Rochelle and I shared uh, in with our finances, which started around the time of the Dave Ramsey series that we had here. What was that, mid-2000? 18 months ago, yeah. 18, that's exactly what I thought. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there was a real, a real clear calling from God that, that Rochelle and I were to, to work for, for getting out of debt. Um, it was very clear that you know, debt is holding us back from, from what we're really capable of doing um, for God um, through our finances. So we began working the Dave Ramsey baby steps. Uh, we got up to step two, which if you're familiar with Dave Ramsey, you'll, you'll know the baby steps. If not, go look them up. Step two, which is working on the debt snowball, a uh, really great way of, of working through your debt and getting out of debt. So we began working through that, through the debt snowball, and we just never seemed to be getting very far with it. Um, and then not, not too long after that, we found ourselves in, a, in an even bigger hole than we, than we started with, to the tune of about $18,000 worth of credit card debt. Mm. And um, to this day, I can't even pinpoint, it's not like we went and bought a you know, new jet ski, new couches and any of that. I can't point to anything and go, yeah, that's what we did with it. Um, yeah, we spent the money, but I have no idea where it went. We did it, but it really felt like a, a definite attack from the devil really getting in there and, and trying to hold us back even further. So we recognised that, prayed against that, redid all our goals and all our targets and uh, figured out that we could get out of that hole uh, by the end of 2015, by the end of last year. And while we were doing that, we also committed together that we were going to continue our first 10% giving here at Elevate. And it was also around the time of these chairs that we're all sitting on here as well when when we needed to purchase those. So again, together we prayed about that and we had come up with a figure that we wanted to put $1,000 in to the building the future um, for the chairs here. So we were committed to all that, committed to God, committed to getting out of debt. And then, well, things started going a little bit awry again. Um, As Mark mentioned, I'm in sales. I'm a work-from-home sales rep. I've usually got quite a lot of tax deductions. So my tax returns usually uh, pretty decent. And, you know, we were looking forward to that coming in taking a huge chunk off the debt, being able to put into building the future. Uh, I did some rough calculations and it turned out I was only going to get probably about $1,000 on my tax return when it's usually a lot more than that. Um, 
at, at around the same time as well, Rochelle was sick off work. She had about two and a half weeks off work uh, without any pay. So it was really setting us back. You know, we just really felt the devil was right in there trying to, trying to really attack it. Yeah. So that... Um Understand that we do have an enemy and understand that that enemy doesn't want us to live free. He wants us to harbour unforgiveness so that we don't live free in our relationships, that we don't live free from our past. He wants us to not be free with our health. He wants us to not be free, certainly with our finances. And yet God is the opposite. God wants us to live free. Jesus died so that we could have life and have it more abundantly and have freedom. From those things. And so <laughs> when we start to break free from some of the things that have been holding us back, expect opposition. Oh, this feels so hard. Yes. And it's not always because we're doing something wrong. Sometimes it is, by the way, but sometimes it's not in, in his opposition. So when I'm, you know, I'm reading this uh, story, I'm like, yep, yep, opposition, yep. It wasn't just some linear trajectory. We have liftoff. It's like, Oh, dear God. So tell us, uh, you know, you, you guys, one of the things that impressed me reading this story is the opposition did come. Did it surprise you? Not really. Okay. No, to be honest. <laughs> so, so, so it didn't surprise you, but there's still the temptation. Well, I'm not saying you had the temptation. In general, the temptation could be to quit. This is too hard. You know, we can live with debt. I mean, we're not, you know, we don't like it, but we can live with it. But that's not freedom, right? You guys pressed on, and I read more of your things. Tell us what happened next. So, yeah, we pressed on, and, and the real important thing was we were still committed to what we had promised to give to God. We were still committed to our first 10% giving, and we were still committed to putting that $1,000 in for building the future. So when we did those numbers, saw I was going to get about 1000 bucks back, we thought, oh, well, we'll just throw that into to building the future. We'll still give that to God, and then we'll just, we'll just keep working the debt snowball as we were. Um, however... That was only some rough calculations. When I actually came to doing my tax return, the amount was a lot higher than I had ever thought it would be, to the tune of being basically within about a few dollars the exact amount we had left to pay off our credit card debt. Mm. <laughs> so, and again, we could have just taken that, clear the credit card, be done with, and then you know work towards given what we had already promised to go. But no, we thought we're going to do that first. So we put the thousand bucks. Uh, put the thousand bucks in with that little bit of debt left, and just thought we'll just work through that. Mm. We should still be able to hit our target, which was getting rid of it by the end of 2015. Um, and then we came to do Rochelle's tax return, which she doesn't have anywhere near as many deductions as me, and normally only gets 50 bucks, 100 bucks if that back, which, which is something. <laughs> yeah, she works for the government. Come on. <laughs> uh, but it turned out unbeknownst to us that through the year she had been overtaxed and so her return was incredibly a lot more than what it ever had been as well. Again, pretty much the exact amount that we had left on the credit card debt. Yeah, great. So hit that out, smashed it out, it was gone. Fantastic. About the 10%. Pretty cool, eh? So then uh, I kept reading. I mean, I was reading all this, you know, sitting in my little, uh, little uh, studio apartment and uh, the last two lines of Jared's email were like, bam, what, I wanted you to read them. Uh, I'll read those verbatim. out, yeah. yeah. All right, God is awesome. Together, Rochelle and I have never really had this level of commitment to God, boldly stepping out in faith, knowing God is who he says he is. The culture at Elevate, this stuff is real. It applies to real life, and it's what has seen us through here. Mm, fantastic. Good, hey? Now, um, don't think that Rochelle's just up here as the arm candy. Uh, the reason I got 
Jared to read most of that or to tell most of that is, is obviously his was the email that generated this uh, discussion. But I wanted Rochelle to have the last word. And uh, <laughs> I know, I like to live on the edge. Um, <laughs> she doesn't have an off switch. Uh, um, what would you say? So, I mean, one of the things you, you guys, Jared's just been saying is about being this together. But tell us from your perspective, people that are in debt or people wanting to, to honour God with their, with their finances, what, are your, what's, what, what word would you share? Yeah. Well, I, I guess the first thing I'd say is that it took me a while to realise this, but I realised that you can't, God can't work in your financial situation unless you give him something to work with. Mm. And that was a huge realisation for me. Mm. Um, and I, it's funny because I actually grew up seeing what God can provide when you step out in faith with him. My parents worked for a mission organisation until I was 12 years old. Uh, they had no fixed income and we lived on faith. So basically we got by by people giving us stuff. Mm. And we never went without, ever. Like I don't even recall one situation in my childhood. In fact, we went on holidays. We had all kinds of stuff. And I knew that growing up and I saw that. But I guess in the intervening years I sort of forgot it. Um, but now, you know, I've sort of seen if I look back over my life and I look back, you know, into this story and what's happened to us recently, that where I've been faithful to God with my money, mm. he's actually provided it to me and, and what I need and, and when I need it, you know. And, and it's amazing. Like, it's just happened. that We didn't need to try. We didn't need to think about it. It just happened exactly mm. how, you know, he promises he will look after us. Great. So I'd say trust God with your money. You definitely won't regret it. Fantastic. Yeah. How about you give it up for Jared and Rochelle, folks? Fantastic. So let me just uh, hit it. We put it out with our e-update this week. Um, talking about money and uh, God's perspective and what God has to say about money isn't just giving. It's what some people think. They just talk about giving. Uh, it, it, the big idea is managing the resources, the financial resources that God's entrusted to us in the way that He uh, prescribes us to. And one of those key aspects is actually is getting out of debt. We say this regularly. Debt is common, but it's not normal. It's not God's way. And so the Dave Ramsey thing, I strongly, strongly recommend it. Um, it's not the only resources out there. Uh, and uh, we have no um, vested financial interest in recommending his resources. But uh, Louis and I used his debt snowball, baby step number two, to get out of debt over the last 18 months. Uh, Jared and Rochelle, Reese and Jess last week shared about this. So if that's something that you need to do, get onto that. If it's something someone you know needs to do. The steps don't require reading the Bible either, by the way. So your, 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 your atheist friends can go onto the Dave Ramsey stuff and not have to give their life to Jesus and they can get out of debt. Might spark a conversation as to where these principles come from. Who knows? Spin the wheel. Hey, um, whether you realise it or not, every one of us has a set of core convictions. Our core convictions, uh, whether they're spoken or unspoken, are, are actually the, the, the true north things in our lives that, 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 that help us decide what we do or what we don't do. Core convictions navigate life for us. Let me share a couple of my core convictions. One of my core convictions is dirty dishes. We don't have a dishwasher. I am the dishwasher, highly reliable. Haven't broken down in 47 years. Dishes, dirty dishes belong on the countertop or the dish drain 
not in the sink. This is not my kitchen. This is putrid. This is feral. This is disgusting. If your kitchen looks like this, you should be ashamed of yourself. Core conviction, not in the sink. Festering in their own filth. Thank you, Regan. Filth. That's the F word I was looking for. Filth. It's filth. That's a core conviction. Now, I actually have relaxed a little bit on that. If you give the things a little wee rinse and tip the, the, the junk, then you can, but only temporarily. One core conviction of mine, however, that I will not ever relax on is this one here. It's very simple. I know, right? How many of you have ever, how many of you people who are also right, like me, and the picture, how many of you have ever had a conversation with someone who's clearly wrong about this very situation? Yeah, they, they have a wrong, they have a wrong core conviction. Well, here's the thing. This, you might think this, this argument, this futile argument has been going on for centuries. It has not. And in fact, let me resolve it right here, right now, once and for all. I present to you the patent application from the inventor of toilet paper, 15th of September, 1891. True story. True. This is, you're welcome. You can thank me later, you people who are right. You can apologise later, you people who are wrong. <laughs> if I come to your house and I go, go to your toilet and the paper goes over the back, the second I exit that, you will have discovered the toilet roll now goes over the top. You're welcome. All right. The, well, okay. These aren't, these aren't overly serious core convictions. Actually, the toilet paper one is. Uh, let me tell you my primary core conviction. And my primary core conviction I try to make sure it navigates everything about my life. I try to make sure my primary core conviction navigates how I spend my time. I try to, I try to endeavour to make my primary core conviction who I associate with and what I do in those interactions and the sorts of relationships I develop in my world. And my primary core conviction determines how I use and how Louis and I use our finances. And my primary core conviction is very simply that Jesus needs to be number one. We launched this series two weeks ago with a message, just asking the question, who's number one? And making the point that Jesus did not die on the cross to make it into our top 10. And number two, whilst still high on the list, is one position too little for where God needs to be in our life. My core conviction is that Jesus needs to be number one. And here's how some people contemplate that. They contemplate that, 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 that that's a one-time decision, that at one time in our lives, we need to make a decision to say, Jesus, I'm gonna make you number one in my life. And by the way, there is a point in time where we need to make that decision, where we need to actually consciously state and publicly declare, Jesus, you are number one. We call that the moment of salvation where we put our trust in Jesus, say, you're number one, be Lord over my life. I'll follow you from this day forward. And if you've never made that decision, we're gonna give you that opportunity this morning in a few moments time. But the mistake is to think that making Jesus number one is only a one-time decision. When in fact, making Jesus number one is an every day, in every way decision. And the churchy word 
is called surrender. That we are to live our lives in a way that we are surrendered to Jesus all the time in every aspect of our lives. And it got me thinking, if partial surrender, not total surrender, if partial surrender was the goal, which sounds kind of odd, right? If partial surrender was the goal, I wonder what some of our songs that we sing might sound like. I think they might sound something like this. to Jesus I surrender some to Him I freely give I will sometimes love and trust Thee in Your presence mostly Oh 
During our run through this morning, Renati told me she feels actually dirty singing those songs. Yeah, I should hope so. I also said make sure you tell your mum that that was a parody before she sees it on Facebook and thinks, what the hell's going on here? Hashtag wrong worship, hashtag not really, okay? That's all I'm saying. But my observation as a, a, a Christian leader for two decades is that More often than not, it's us that holds out on God and not Him that holds out on us. That total surrender is actually normal. If we wrote songs like that, it's just like, no, of course not. Total surrender is normal. And my challenge today, and and, and I felt quite a weight of responsibility preparing this message and leading up to delivering this message is to actually challenge you and invite you to consider what area or areas of life that you might be holding back in. Because actually my observation is that, that people don't, people who say I'm a follower of Jesus, trust Him and make Him number one in some areas and yet not others. It's very rarely that you might put your hand up on the one hand and say, I I follow Jesus, but I don't trust Him in anything. What I observe is I I follow Jesus, but there's still a couple of areas I've got some trust issues with. I haven't yet surrendered those areas to Him. And so my goal today is to really, to, to, to challenge you to say, is there any area or areas you've yet to surrender? Your faith might be way up here, trust level way up here in some areas, but yet to get off the ground or be, or be latent in other areas. What are they and what's holding you back from surrendering those areas to Him? Because surrender isn't when we give God something, it's when we give God everything. And now the reason we've called this series The Church Just Wants My Money is because of all of the things that we hold back, of all of the things that, that, that can crowd out God being number one, Jesus made the point that money for too many people is that very thing, is that thing that competes for number one. In fact, here's Jesus' exact words. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. So our goal for this series, I mentioned it straight off the bat in week one, is not to revenue raise for Elevate Church, but rather to help you and me make sure there's nothing stopping God being number one, especially in the current culture we live in, money. Now, if you're a Bible app person, flip your Bible app open. We're going to continue to unpack a story that we've been basing this whole series around. It's from 1 Kings chapter 18, so you can fast forward to that. We're going to have the words on the screen shortly as well, if you haven't got your app handy. 
Um, but here's the backstory. The people of God was the nation of Israel several thousand years ago. The Israelites, as they're, as they're often referred to, were the chosen people of God. And God had, had led them out of slavery from Egypt after 400 years of being captives by the Pharaoh there, or Pharaohs, had led them through the wilderness and delivered them into a promised land. After a time in the promised land, even though God had done all those great things for them, they, they didn't turn their back on Him, but they turned their face slightly away from Him. He, he, didn't, he didn't slip out of their top 10, but he, but he slipped from number one. And God didn't like that very much. He doesn't like competition. He doesn't like you giving in to competition. He likes to be number one. And so what happened is after a period of time of, of this competition, for God being number one and having been bumped off number one, God sent a guy named Elijah to speak on his behalf to the king. Now the king was an evil dude named Ahab. Sent Elijah to go to speak to the king, which you gotta take a lot of faith to, to go and speak to a king who's evil, who actually his face is turned away from God and speak on behalf of God. It, should, it could have been a suicide mission, but Elijah had the sort of faith and obedience that caused him to go and speak to the king. So he fronted up to the king, Ahab, and said, listen, Ahab, God's told me this, that there's not gonna be any rain or in fact, even any dew on the ground until I say so. Turning off the tap of heaven until I say so. Now, the, the nation of Israel at the time were almost strictly an agrarian nation. They relied solely on agriculture. And if you rely solely on agriculture, you ultimately need rain to produce your income. And God said, I'm gonna turn the taps off. I'm gonna crash your economy. Stage an intervention because I need to get your attention. Now, Ahab didn't like that very much. So he put a bounty on Elijah's head. Elijah got out of there alive just and was on the run for nearly three years from Ahab and his bounty hunters. And God said to Elijah after about this three or during the third year, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Ahab, the guy that's got the, the bounty on your head. I want you to go back to him and tell him, have you got the message yet? Because if you have, I'm gonna turn the taps back on. So Elijah went back to the king, said, listen, king, God said he's gonna turn the taps back on if, if, providing you've learnt this lesson. Ahab didn't quite get it, thought that it was Elijah's fault, not their disobedience fault that the taps were turned off. Said to Elijah, well, called him a troublemaker. I think the original language might have been a bit stronger than that. Um, didn't take Elijah's word for it. Was pretty upset at Elijah. Didn't take any responsibility for himself. So Elijah said, all right, here's what we're gonna do. You still don't believe that, that the God that I serve is the one true God. So let's have, let's have a little contest. Let's have a little arm wrestle, shall we? In fact, let's, let's make it even. How about we all go up to Mount Carmel, the whole nation, let's go up to the top of the mountain and I'm gonna turn up there, the sole representative of the one true God that I follow and I believe in. And you turn up there with 850 of your best prophets. Because what had happened is the nation of Israel, whilst God was still in their top 10, they'd bumped another God called Baal up to number one. So Elijah said, all right, let's go me and my God versus Baal and 850 of his representatives. Let's, let's see who's gonna win that competition. 
So they go up to the top of the mountain, probably a day's trek for the whole nation, including the prophets. Go up to the top of the mountain and Elijah says, all right, here's what I want you to do. We're gonna build an altar. We're gonna build an altar out of rocks. We're gonna put firewood around the rocks. Then we're gonna put some, some ox and some other animals on that. And, uh, and then we're gonna call down fire from heaven to light, to light the altar, to light the bonfire, light the barbecue. And he said, in fact, you prophets of Baal, I'm gonna be a good guy. You get to go first. So, one thing to understand is that Baal is always drawn, even back then, drawn with a lightning bolt in his hand. He was considered to be the one that controls the weather. Right Now we know that lightning may be a precursor to rain, say rain's coming, but we also know that lightning can start a fire. So, so if the goal is to whose God can start the fire first and best, and the God you worship's got a lightning bolt in his hand, you would think this is Baal's time to shine. Huh, fire, I can do fire, easy, boom. And so these prophets of Baal, 850 of them, they danced around this altar, praying and singing and doing all these things for six hours, 6 a.m. to midday. Nothing happened, nothing. And we do that, you and I. Something's not working in our life. And instead of stopping and saying, God, what am I missing here? What, 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 what do I need to do differently? Give me some wisdom, open my Bible, get some course correction. Too often, we just try harder at doing the very things that took us off course in the first place. We dance more, we, we scream more, we, we get frustrated more. So Elijah said, and I quote, enough of that, it's my turn. <laughs> Gather round. I like this, guy's got some game. And they gathered, not just the prophets, the whole nation. He then put the altar back together for it's now in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Jacob, the same Jacob to whom God had said, from now on, your name is Israel. He built the stones into an altar in honour of God. Then Elijah dug a fairly wide trench around the altar and he laid firewood on the altar, cut up the ox, put it on the wood and said, fill four buckets with water and drench both the ox and the firewood. And then he said, do it again. And they did it. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. Pay close attention to what I just read. His goal is to start a fire, for God to start a fire. He's asking God to start a fire and the way he's prepping the firewood is by pouring water on it. Glunk. Like, is Elijah crazy? By the way, not only is he pouring water on the very wood that he wants to be lit up, they're in the third year of a drought. Water was a very precious resource. Now, why was Elijah asking the people to pour water onto the altar? Here's the thing. Here's a little bit. Let me unpack the context. That part of the world, it's pretty arid. There's not a lot of water. There's not a lot of rainfall. And the people at the, in that time, they considered water to be the source of life. No water, no life. 
And so for anybody at any time to pour water over a rock was actually an, an act of worship. It was actually the ultimate act of trust. It was a demonstration for, for them and for anybody watching that we actually don't consider water to be the source of life. We consider God to be the source of life. And in fact, God to be the source of water, which ultimately allows us Life And I'm gonna trust God to such a radical, crazy, extravagant, ridiculous level that I am going to waste some water by just flagrantly pouring on a rock because I know that water is not the source of life. And I know that instead God's the source of life. And I know that God provided this water. And I know that my God is gonna be able to provide plenty more where that came from. It was already the ultimate act of worship. But here they were in an arid part of the world, three years into a drought. So we're now in an extreme situation. And Elijah's telling them to pour water over the altar. But here's the big idea. There's a difference between saying God's your source and showing God's your source. We can sing, I surrender all on endless loop. It's much easier to sing it than to show it. And in this case, they were showing it. A resource that some might consider to be precious, a resource that some might be considered to be finite and limited. And they were just pouring it over rocks. They're on a mountain where Stuart Roberts, our resident plumber, assures me water doesn't flow uphill. They're in the third year of a drought, even no dew promised. There was no well, because you don't dig wells on mountaintops, you dig them in valleys. And there was no 7-Eleven, so they couldn't just go and get a bottle of thank you water. They, they, they would have all trekked about a day to get there. So they would have gone fully prepped with water which answers the question, where did they get the water from? See, Elijah's saying, pour water on the rocks. Boom, four buckets. All right, do it again. Boom, more water. Okay, a third time, boom, more water. Where they get the water from, here's the thing. They would have got the water from the people gathered around, from the Israelites. The people who trekked there, who, who, who came prepared, we're the smart ones. We brought water. You didn't bring water, you're an idiot. You ain't getting, getting back home in one piece. It was a day here, it's gonna be a day back. You're dead. And yet Elijah's saying that very water that you brought up, this precious water, this, this so-called source of life, that if you don't have enough to get back to where you came from, you might not even make it there. Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to actually give it up because we're gonna pour it on the rocks and we're gonna show the, the, the bales that we trust that God's the source of life, not water. And I wonder, thinking about this week, teaching on this, I wonder if by the time Elijah got to the third time, do it again, bring some more water. I wonder if some wag was sitting in the back row of, of the crowd going, ha yeah, 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 Elijah just wants your water. Some cynical Aussie. Oh yeah, the first time I get it, the second time, but here he goes, pressure, guilt, keep saying it. It's, there's no other way to think about it. Elijah just wants your water. Well, for the most part, we don't have the same sort of problems of water being a scarce resource. Living in Perth, Western Australia, we don't typically 
consider water to be the source of life. But in the current culture we live in, a lot of people think that money is the source of life, that money is a scarce resource, that, that money is something that if someone asks you to give something away to them, they must have some illicit motives. Ah, the church just wants your money. Well, <laughs> this was never about water when it came to Elijah challenging them to give water because, because God had already told Elijah it was about to rain and it was about to rain a lot. So if Elijah wanted water, if that was somehow part of the stunt that he was about to pull, he could have just waited and God could have brought the rain and he would have had the water. But, but it wasn't about the water. It was about what's the barrier between you and making God number one. It's about how much are you gonna trust God in the area of provision that you're willing to actually sacrifice some of your water as an act of worship because it's much easier to say you're surrendered than it is to show you're surrendered. And so he asked for water. And he asked for water three times. What's that about? I'm glad you asked. Because not everyone gets it the first time. Not everyone gets it the first time. He asked for water and some people brought their water, but not everyone. Some people held back. Uh Uh-uh, I get my water. Source of life. So he asked again and, and, and another group. Okay, all right. I'll take a step of faith. I'll give my water. But not everyone. So he asked a third time. And some more people came. What if he had only asked once? Group two and group three would not have been able to participate in the miracle, would not have been able to demonstrate, would have actually been held back. God would not have been demonstrated as being number one. So Elijah asked them three times. Do you know we talk about money and giving every single week here at Elevate Church? I've been told we shouldn't, not by any of you. But in years gone past, I shared about that week one. Someone said, we shouldn't talk about money. I said, why not? I said, because uh, I don't like it. I said, well, we're not building the church on what you like. Building the church on what God says. Is that all right? No. Okay. So they left. And left me with a bill. What stingy people do. We talk about money every week. And, and you'd think if we talk about money every week, and if you're here, let's say, even only 40 Sundays a year, you think everyone would be giving by now, but, but, but we're only at about 50%. It's not about the money. God doesn't need your money. It's about removing the barriers. God didn't need the water. He's about to send the rain. It's about the barriers. Well, I pray that some of you take your first step today, take your next step. Well, here's how the story goes on. I love this. When it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed, Oh God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant and that what I'm doing, I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, God, oh, answer me and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you're giving these people another chance at repentance. You know, the people thought that their number one need was for water and Elijah didn't even so much as pray for water. Because actually he prayed for the thing they needed more than water, is they need a re- revelation that God's number one. They need a revelation that God's more powerful than the God that they've been worshipping, Baal, the guy with the lightning bolt who couldn't start a fire or bring the rain. 
He didn't pray for water, he prayed for revelation. Make it known right now that you are God in Israel. Reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you're giving these people another chance at repentance. Love that. God of the second chance. Immediately, the fire of God fell, burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. All the people saw it happen and fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is the true God. God is the true God. Finally, they hit the jackpot. It wasn't about the water. This teaching series, it's not about the money. It's about surrendering everything because partial surrender is not surrender at all. I want to give you an opportunity. I mentioned earlier, if you haven't surrendered your own life as, as a starting point in a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now before we finish. And all I want you to do in a moment is, is, is just to say to God, I want to surrender my life to you for the first time, is just put your hand up to Him so He can see where you're at and you can put it down and then we're just going to pray as we finish. Just look around our auditorium a couple of times. Once I see a hand, you can put it down. 